Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Later today, Governor Ned Lamont, he's going to present the biennium state budget to the General Assembly. And it's expected to include a $45 million tax cut for some 212,000 households in Connecticut. Plus, that so-called middle-class tax cut for 1.1 million of 1.7 million filers here in Connecticut. Today on Where We Live, we've got on two of Connecticut State Capitol reporters to preview the state's formal budget presentation. But first, we examine what happens after a person is told by a provider that they're going to die. There are some states in America that assert a terminally ill patient's wishes to end suffering, and Connecticut is maybe closer than ever to joining 10 states and Washington, D.C. in enacting a medical aid in dying law. Our first guest today was touched uh, on her mother's death and her late husband's battle with Parkinson's disease, and she set out to explore the issue of patient autonomy in her book titled When My Time Comes, Conversations About Whether Those Who Are Dying Should Have the Right to Determine When Life Should End. Diane Rehm, a longtime NPR host as well and podcaster, now host of the Diane Rehm On My Mind podcast for WAMU, American University's NPR station. Thank you so much for joining us today, Diane. Hi there, Frankie. Good morning to you. And, and if anybody's listening as well, you can join us in the conversation. Call 888-720-9677. Diane, you've had reasons to become personally invested in this issue and actually testified before the Maryland legislature in 2019 about your own painful personal experiences. How have they kind of shaped your involvement in this matter? Well, you know, I've been living with death for a very long time, and I think that what I've seen has helped me understand that just as at the beginning of life, at the end of life, people need to have a choice. And I'm now 86 years old, when my time comes, which is also the name of the documentary that was on PBS and is now on Amazon, um, my book is based on that documentary, which I narrated. The question becomes, whose choice is it? when the time to die comes. Should it be the doctor's choice? We used to think doctors were gods, that they knew everything, and we did everything they told us to do. That's no longer the case. Medical aid in dying is now available in 10 states plus the District of Columbia, and I know Connecticut State Legislature is currently considering it 
as is New York, as is Maryland, as is Delaware, and about 10 other states. I hope that this program, as well as many others around the country, are going to help push that forward. Diane, do you think that so many states considering jumping in now and, and, and enacting this legislation, do you think that's because the conversation's changed a bit around aid and dying? What are your thoughts there? I think the conversation changed. When we began doing our film, there were only three states that had medical aid in dying. By the time we completed our documentary in 2020, there were 10 states. So I think there is momentum because people saw what happened during COVID, that there had been no plans made, no one had fully thought ahead. What our film and my book tried to do is to get people to talk about medical aid in dying, talk not just about that, but what they want at the end of life. And that's been a taboo subject for way too long. So to get people to talk about with their families, with their friends, with their colleagues, what they would like to see happen at the end of their lives. That's our goal. With the Maryland State Legislature, when I testified there, we lost by one vote. It's coming up again in this legislature, and I know it's being discussed in Connecticut. I hope you have good luck. Diane, I've always felt like uh, I'm, a, I'm an Italian person that's also Catholic, so I've always felt like you're always like kind of surrounded by death, and like you're, I'm so macabre about it when I talk to other people, almost like it's a, a natural thing for me to talk about. Since you were young, I understand your mother passed away when she was 49 years old or something like that. This is something you've had right. to confront. So does that make it easier for you to talk about death and, and make it less taboo? Well, I'll tell you, it was pretty darn difficult when she died. I was only 19. Mm-hmm. My father died 11 months later of a broken heart, literally mm-hmm. of a broken heart. Then my father-in-law, who lived alone on his farm, was suffering from um, diabetic retinopathy, which took his eyesight, which meant he could no longer drive. He could no longer care for himself. He took his own life at 74. And then my mother-in-law took her own life at 92 because she was in a great deal of pain. So as I've said, I've lived a long life and I've seen a lot of death in my life. The Catholic Church, I must tell you, has been the most fierce and monetized opponent 
to medical aid in dying. In Boston, for example, in Massachusetts, a referendum was held showing that more than 70% of residents were in favor of medical aid in dying, at which point the Catholic Church stepped in with $5 million to defeat the proposal in Massachusetts. It has once again been defeated. I hope that does not happen in Connecticut. Hey, I just want to take a second, Diane, because we have a, a phone call right now from somebody coming in, uh, and I believe this is Joan. Joan, can you share what your thoughts are on aid and dying legislation? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Joan Cavanaugh. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut, and I'm a member of a group called Progressives Against Medical Assisted Suicide. We, um, and it actually is great that you picked up right now because I want to follow up on what Ms. Reem just said. Uh, we are not the Catholic Church, and we are not monetized. We don't have any money. Um, we believe that progressives should stand against this legislation, and we are, we've been fighting it for many years. Um, we believe that to pass laws to enable someone, to, to enable physicians to, to end their lives with lethal drugs goes beyond way beyond any personal choice. Giving physicians, giving patients access to life-ending cocktails is not treatment, and it's bad public policy. It costs the lives of many people who would have made other choices had those been available to them. Joan, thank you so much for calling in. I, I want to I'm give... Not, I'm not quite finished, please. Um, we, we, many of us who are thank, members of this group Thank you so much for calling in, Joan. I'm going, to have, uh, I'm going to have Diane respond to your comment. Thank you so much, Joan. Diane, you, you got to hear uh, from, from a caller there. Sure. I want to make sure, sure, I, uh, so I, want to make sure I have here. you address that. But, but, uh, but also, let's, let's, let's dive in right there. We, we have different uh, kind of terminology for this. We also hear about aid in dying, but we also hear some folks talk about uh, medical suicide as well. Go ahead. Look, suicide is in one set of categories. Euthanasia is in another set of categories. This is a decision to be made by the individual who is within six months of death. Two doctors must decide that this individual is dying, will be dead within six months. I realize that that is a determination that some people can argue with. It may or may not be absolutely accurate, but it is the individual, him or herself, who asks for help with dying because, and I must inform you that pain is not the number one reason. It is lack of joy in life. People reach a certain point with their illness, with their suffering, when they say enough, and they go to their doctor and they say, am I eligible? And then 
the process begins. The other absolutely imperative part of this is that the individual must be able to articulate that request. Nobody else can do it for them and must be able to self-administer. No doctor is putting an individual to death. What a doctor is doing is prescribing medication that if the patient chooses would help the patient die. And you should know that only one in three individuals who receive the medication actually uses it. Uh, really quickly, because I want to play you a bite, Diane, but really quickly, I, I got to kind of address what we just heard uh, from a caller about these lethal cocktails. I don't, I don't necessarily want to want to talk about uh, lethal cocktails, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is a concern that folks have that disposable of disposal of drugs uh, that that people may use to in this part if they whatever they get prescribed from their doctor and just looking at death with dignity a website and talking about disposal that seems to be a big kind of issue is is there anything you can say to lay any fears that anybody may have about disposal or at least the conversation about these these drugs you know you're talking about disposal of any kind hmm. of serious heavy drugs i don't want to get into that because it's not even really part of this conversation. This conversation is about choice. If you want everything that medical science can provide and you want every experimental drug, you should have it if that's your choice. If you say, I want God to be the only decider that should be your freedom of choice. And if I want medical aid in dying, why should you not support me as I will support you? It's all about choice. We've heard uh, in this conversation, here's another voice I want to get in here, uh, from Anita Hannig, an anthropologist and author of The Day I Die, The Untold Story of Assisted Dying in America, who also spoke about the dangers of conflating uh, aid in dying with assisted suicide. When we look at the terminology, one thing that we have to realize is that the term suicide has a very specific history. Until the 19th century, suicide was actually viewed as a crime in the United States, which was punishable with confiscation of the deceased property and denial of a Christian burial. And although suicide today has been decriminalized, it remains heavily stigmatized. And when you think about the debate around assisted dying, opponents of the practice continue to tap into the stigma that clings to the term assisted suicide. Um, and they they like to kind of tap into the social taboos and the moral outrage that surround the act of taking one's life. But when you look at the effect of that terminology on patients, you, oh, I found that calling assisted dying assisted suicide leads to sick patients hiding their desire to pursue an assisted death from loved ones because they fear being judged for suiciding. 
As a cultural anthropologist, um, I know that how we name something really determines how we can think about it conceptually. And she's speaking about an uphill battle to change public perception around this term. And then there's an example we have that the American Medical Association uses the term physician-assisted suicide. What do you think about these terms and how they're used, Diane? Here's the thing. Words have power. Last night, I debated a physician from Toronto who kept referring to it as euthanasia. Euthanasia does not exist anywhere in this country under law. The issue is not suicide. It is not blowing one's head off with a gun. It is not jumping out of the building if you are even able to do that. The issue is illness and reaching a point where a human being says, I cannot do this any longer. It is too debilitating. I have no joy in life. I can no longer be of use to society. My life is wonderful, but now it's over and I am ready to go. The use of words, as Anita says, is absolutely essential. And we must separate the term suicide from the term medical aid in dying. You talked about how Connecticut's close to getting this legislation through. The Public Health Committee recently had a meeting and a ranking member on this committee State Senator Heather Summers joined other lawmakers and advocates. She was speaking out against medical aid and dying. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. My focus in this session is not a assisted suicide, not death with dignity. I don't think there's any dignity in taking your own life or having somebody take that your life for you. The focus really needs to be, how does the state improve the end of life care for those who are going through that? How do we change the rules of hospice so that someone can come off a of hospice and go back on hospice? How do we empower clinicians at the bedside to be able to do more than they can right now under the rules that we have so they can help with the pain and the suffering that loved ones are seeing their loved ones go through? That's where the focus should be. I think she's, I think she's uh, talking to, to an argument that palliative care should be the priority. What are your thoughts? The fact of the matter is there is some pain that no medication, no form of palliative care can reach unless you simply put people to sleep. And if you want to die that way, fine. If you want to simply drift away after you've been given enough morphine to help. But there is some pain that even the heaviest drugs will not touch. The fact of the matter is hospice is wonderful. Palliative care is wonderful. But there are some patients who say, will I ever 
be the way I was? And the answer is no. They are ready to go, and they should have that choice. Diane, we got to take a break. Uh, stick with us if you can, because we're going to expand the conversation sure. here. Stronger criteria is expected to be added to the aid and dying bill we're discussing this hour. According to our very own health reporter, Sujata Srinivasan, coming up, she joins us along with CT News Junkie Editor-in-Chief Christine Stewart to dig deeper into such a philosophical issue. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. For 30 years... Connecticut lawmakers have tried to push through legislation that supports a terminally ill person's choice to end their life. Fourteen times a medical aid in dying proposal has failed to make it through the Connecticut General Assembly. But on the 15th try, a local doctor turned lawmaker tells our Sujata Srinivasan that this year is different. Sujata joins where we live via Zoom. Hi, Sujata. Morning, Frankie. Hi. And we got my political reporting buddy on the phone line calling from the Capitol right now, CT News Junkies, Christine Stewart. Good morning, Christine. Might have her muted. We'll have her join the conversation whenever she's ready. Sujata, I want to start the conversation uh, with you, and I just want to remind folks, too, that uh, a, a really cool thing is that Diane has agreed to stay on the line in case we need to talk about anything here today. So thank you for sticking with us, Diane. And I now have Christine on the phone as well. Hi, Christine. Hi, good morning. And Sujata, you were at the this hearing that uh, we just played some audio from earlier on January 18th and heard Public Health Committee co-chair State Senator and Physician Saud Anwar field questions on why this bill was different this year. What do you think? Tighter restrictions going to be added? What do you think? Um, yes, Frankie. I mean, um, this is not an easy conversation, and it's certainly not been easy for lawmakers to codify um, a, a topic that at its heart uh, touches our conscience, collective conscience as a society, because we're talking about the value of human life. The pushback um, from those on the fence 
um, has largely been these uh, many years, as you say, you know, close to 30 years, has been about the, the provisions uh, lack of, as they perceive, to protect those who might be vulnerable and to protect people from um, exploitation. So that's what uh, the committee has addressed. But um, I um, and the latest version is uh, the uh, adult should be at least of age 18 to be able to request aid in dying medication. But we know that they must have a terminal illness. Um, attending physician determines not uh, life expectancy of no longer than uh, six months with the progression of the disease. Uh, there should be two witnesses um, who are not related to the patient and who are not beneficiaries of the patient's estate. One attending physician um, certifying uh, the prognosis uh, and these kind of prognoses are made every day across Connecticut when we, uh, when the healthcare system um, recommends people into hospice care, you know, in terms of life expectancy. And then another physician um, to uh, to kind of oversee and sign off on the attending physician's diagnosis. Now, um, Senator Southanwood, I just spoke to him, and he says that uh, is a concern that it's not going far enough in terms of protection. So right now, as we speak, the current language in this version of the bill is being worked on. So the age they're going to revise, uh, Senator South Anwar told me, from 18 to 21. There is also going to be a follow-up mechanism. So once the attending physician um, uh, you know, says this patient is um, a candidate for this, making this choice, and the second physician signs off on it, um, they're going to revisit that decision. So there's going to be a follow-up mechanism, some sort of mechanism they're working on to say, wait a minute, has the patient changed their mind? Has anything in the situation uh, changed? Another change they're working on is residency concerns. So right now, um, the, the, the language uh, pertains to uh, Connecticut resident, but, uh, but then um, there was a pushback saying, wait a minute, what about people coming from out of state and uh, living here for a few weeks? And um, they, they felt, uh, those that opposed felt that this is not uh, right and they wanted that to be tightened. So now they're working on residency um, eligibility. You know, um, a person should have lived in Connecticut for this uh, many years, this many months, so forth, uh, to be able to um, ask for this uh, aid in dying medication. Because when you're, when you're talking about that, we've heard that in recent years, people have gone to different states or maybe even moved there, as I understand it. There are some states uh, in the area that, that have medical aid in dying, I believe, are Maine and Vermont. And then there's Oregon that is uh, 3,000 miles away. Sometimes some people are, are, are trying to make this, this tough decision, but they're, they know what they want to do because of the pain that they're going through, that they may move to another state, as I understand it, Suchata? Well, there's a perfect example. Diane, thank you for joining us. Uh, Go ahead, Diane. There's a perfect example of that, and that is Brittany Menard, whose name you may recall, who was suffering from brain cancer. Uh, she learned that just three months after she was married, she had to, she was living in California. She had to move and establish residency in Oregon. She had to move her whole life to Oregon, which, by the way, has now done away with that establishment of residency. So Oregon is the oldest uh, state which has medical aid in dying. 
Connecticut, if it passes with all these restrictions, may find itself in the same position that Oregon now does. It has done away with those residency requirements because just think what it would be if you are sick and you've been told by your doctors that you have only six months to live. Just think what it would have to be like to pick up and move your entire family. Most people in the first place couldn't even afford it to make that kind of move. And so Oregon has now done away with it. Connecticut uh, legislature, which is trying to surround itself with all kinds of protections, is going to find itself down the road if it passes in this same situation. It's ridiculous to make people move and they don't want to move. I want to I want to unpack some of this a, a little more when we talk about other states and how other states nationally view this subject. Christine, when we walk around the state capitol, sometimes we're approached by people that represent Coca-Cola or we're approached by people that want to talk to us about tolls or something like that. This is an issue that we've we've met. Uh, uh, there's an actor that lives, I believe, in Westport. His name is Jim Naughton that, that has been an advocate on this. You meet some people that are just so impacted by a real issue here. So I just want to kind of I want to I want to get your idea on if you think that the conversation is changing on Ada dying at the Capitol and maybe it's something that could pass this year. What do you think? So that's really difficult to tell. So unless you speak to every lawmaker on every committee this bill is going to pass through, you're not going to know. It's not a party line issue. It's um, like Sujatha said, it's a it's a consciousness um, issue. And so you have to pull every single lawmaker in order to figure out where they stand on that. So it's really difficult to say if it has gained momentum or not. And we're looking at an entirely new set of lawmakers this year. So we don't necessarily know where some of these lawmakers have, have stood in the past because they haven't been here. They're, they're new to the state capitol. And what happened last year was that it did pass um, by a pretty good majority. It did pass the Public Health Committee, but then it had to go to the Judiciary Committee, which is where, um, where it ended up dying. So you need to, you know, poll at least two separate committees in order to get an idea of of where this is going to stand. And I don't believe that anyone has has gone that far yet. I want to I want to jump in, jump in with you on the on the committee that this is going to go to. But I just got to uh, interrupt us here because we do have a caller uh, coming in from Southington. I believe this is Kristen. Kristen, thank you for joining us on where we live this morning. Go ahead. Your comment. Can you hear me well? I can hear you well. Thank you for joining us this morning, Kristen. Perfect. So my name is Kristen Kessa, and I have been fighting for this legislation since the passing of my mother in 2019. In 2019, she called me. She thought she had appendicitis. She was like, I know you had it this year. How does it feel? And I'm like, Mom, go to the doctor. She's like, oh, your your dad's not home yet. like, Mom, just go to the doctor. Go to the hospital. You feel like you have appendicitis. Just go. She had been sick all year and had gone to lots of medical appointments and everything was passing the buck on this issue or that. And when she went to the hospital, they ended up finding a 10 inch tumor on her ovaries. Mm. 
From that diagnosis to her death on September 20th, it was seven weeks. My mom was the most honest person you could talk to, and she told me throughout my life, like, I'm, I'm almost 40 now. She said, Kristen, Melissa Holly, Will, Bill is my dad's name. If I get sick or I'm going to die, I want to be go on my own terms. And I know that, that day when she told me she had that 10-inch tumor, I actually looked up the laws in different states to see if she could move to Washington State because I knew the path my mom wanted to take. She had told she had she had made it very clear. Matter of fact, when she came home from the hospital that day, she said, they gave me 20 pills of morphine. I'm, I don't need them yet. It's not that painful. This is my exit ticket. She literally said that. Um, so for the next month, we did this, did all this. I thought cancer would go fast. Like they'd go from right to like palliative care or treatment so fast. And I learned instantly that cancer sucks and to actually get to the treatment phase or palliative care phase can take a full month. And by the time she had decided, you know what, I want to, I want to live a little longer. I'm going to try palliative care. I'm, I'm going to try, you know, treatment, this chemotherapy to get a few more months. It was too late. She tried one dose of chemotherapy and the doctor that next week said, sometimes chemotherapy does really bad stuff and kills people faster. Within 10 days after that, she was dead. That Sunday after the doctor told her that, I remember her telling me that she cried with my father because she wanted to die that Sunday. And I still don't know what she told my dad and how my dad convinced her not to take that medicine. But I know she was an advocate for medical aid and dying. And I know what she would have chosen. I know she would have taken, she would have followed the rules. She would have gotten the prescription. She had multiple times in her life before she even got cancer told me exactly what she wanted. It was no pressure, no outside influences. And I truly believe she would have that Sunday, instead of crying with my dad, would have had us around her and would have used this option. Now, while people fight for this option, state, only about 6,000 of the 20% of the nation access, that can access this have used it. Having one this long in, help. One in five people. Thank, I just want to, Diane, I just want to thank Kristen so much for calling sure. us and, and sharing sure. that. Thank you for sharing this this uh, relationship you had with your mother and sharing this with us on where we live this morning. Have a great day, Kristen. I did want to mention the wording thing, though. Um, you had talked about the anthropologist who talked about the change from the idea of it being called physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, some people who are opposition have tied this into Holocaust wording. Um, and I even find it interesting on the Hartford Current after uh, the Compa Compassion and Choices had their art exhibition added to the Capitol, that while part of the article, the title is Connecticut Weighs In on Aid and Dying, again, that when it says page two, it says turn to suicide. And I thought that was ironic. I'm like, so half the article, uh, about a third of the article says medical aid and dying, and two-thirds of the article mentions it being suicide. So I still see that wording in the media, but you know what's interesting is one of the best parts of being someone who's speaking for this bill multiple times is my own colleagues and friends. I've only had one friend in opposition, they, and everyone else keeps coming up to me and saying, thank you for advocating for this. I, I cut off Diane earlier. Thank you so much, Kristen. I just want to have yeah. Diane uh, be able to address you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Kristen. Have a good day. Go ahead, Diane. You said one in five was what you started off with earlier. One in five Americans currently has access to medical aid in dying. What I wanted to commend Kristen for is the fact that her mother had talked with her before she got sick 
about what she wanted at the end of life. And that, honestly, Frankie, is what I'm advocating for. I want people. I want families. I want sisters and brothers, friends to discuss with each other what they want. Death remains the most taboo subject in this country. And the idea of raising the issue with your family long before you have any indication of illness is what is so important. Frankie, I don't know how old you are, but if you have a wife, a partner, a friend, aunts, uncles, parents, talk to them about what you want and listen to what they want. Thank you for joining us this morning, uh, Diane. We're gonna, we're just gonna, I just gotta add a couple more questions here to uh, to Christine and Sujata before we uh, go to a break here. Just Christine, uh, this sounds like it's going to Judiciary Committee next. Uh, do I have that right? The aid and dying legislation well, in Connecticut? It's in the Public Health Committee. They had the public hearing ah. on it. Um, but all the supporters are um, under the impression that it will have to go to the Judiciary Committee next. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like Christine said, that's um, the, the hope. Um, and that's what, um, you know, some of the committee members uh, told me, including Senator Anwar, is the hope is that, you know, after the public hearing, it goes to the Judiciary Committee, and then there's another public hearing, and, uh, you know, the regular uh, process. Um, it's it's legal in 10 states and D.C. You spoke with Tim Appleton. He's the Connecticut Campaign Director of Compassionate Choice, Sujata. He addressed concerns around legal or medical misuse in states where aid and dying is legal. What do he tell you? Well, um, so this was at the at the, um, um, at the event um, in January, uh, and he's compassion and choices says just over five thousand people have ingested this life-ending medication since nineteen ninety-seven, and he says those numbers point to the fact that there really isn't widespread um, abuse because it, it isn't that people are lining up uh, for this cocktail to end their lives. But on the other hand, you know, too, um, I, I do have to mention that I did also speak with John Kelly, a disability rights advocate, and he's director of uh, Second Thoughts, the New England region. And, uh, you know, and he says, he, he pointed to the fact, you know, we looked at the Oregon data, and I pulled up the Oregon data, 238 people died in 2021 under um, the Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. And uh, the reasons most uh, uh, cited, uh, most frequently reported end-of-life uh, concerns were the loss of autonomy, the decreasing ability to participate in activities that made life enjoyable and joyful, and loss of dignity. And for disability advocates who oppose uh, the legislation, they, you know, this is a, a, a crucial matter. I mean, these are not people on the fence who are looking to tighten the language and then therefore they might be in favor of the legislation. These are people who no matter what are not going to change their minds because they say, if you improve uh, quality of life, if you help people live with dignity, if the healthcare huh. uh, wasn't so expensive, then people might not be forced to make these choices. Sujata, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. We're going to continue to follow your reporting on this. Diane, thank you so much for joining us today. Diane Reem, thank you guys for your time. Christine Stewart, I'm going to have you stick around, if you will. And John, thank you. And we're going to be joined, too, by John Craven to help dig into today's budget announcement right after a quick break. Take 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. We spent the balance of this show exploring medical aid and dying legislation, and now we're going to zoom out a bit. Governor Ned Lamont and the state will make a formal budget presentation later today, meaning that afternoon east we'll know about the state's priorities heading into the 2024 and 2025 fiscal years. Christine Stewart of CT News Junkie didn't go anywhere after the first two segments. And we picked up a pal here during the break. Please welcome to the show News 12's John Craven, one half of Frankie and Johnny Craven. <laughs> We're getting the band back together. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Uh, and I want to alienate Christine here, but I just heard on my way in here that god-awful Cars for Kids commercial all the time that uh, you talk about on Twitter. So that made me think about you even more here. Frankie, if you sing it, I'm getting off this call. And then I won't. I won't. And then finally, <laughs> before we get into this, Christine, uh, you make me insecure about my weight all the time when I get to see somebody come wake up at five. Somebody who also has kids wake up at five o'clock in the morning and jog in black ice. Yeah, that was pretty much what happened this morning. But I found two dollars on the sidewalk. Well, I hope so that I, ha- I hope that today's your lucky day to go work out. <laughs> It pays to work out, especially in black ice. All right, guys. Anybody who has a question as well, I just want to make sure that I can tell folks that they can call in. If they have a question about the budget, maybe there's something we can help you with prior to the noon budget address. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. The headline in the proposed biennium budget, I would imagine, is tax cuts, Christine. The governor says that by bringing down a 5% and 3% income tax rate, he could save money for some 1.1 million local filers. What are you hearing about this so-called middle-class tax cut? Yeah, so this tax cut is a tax cut on uh, the rates within the bracket. So this would actually impact everybody the way that Connecticut's income tax works. Um, so everybody would pretty much get a break on the first 10000 and then the the second um, 50000 So the first 10000 because we have a progressive income tax here in Connecticut, is um, charged at 3% now. It would go down to 2%. And then anything um, 50000 and above would go from 5% to 4.5%. So this is the first time since Roland um, that we've actually seen a proposal to to cut the the income tax um, rate. So I guess it's a pretty big deal, and um, you know lawmakers on both sides at this point are are supporting it, are supportive of it. Um, it will help the middle class, and then combined with his um, proposal to increase the earned income tax credit. Basically, anybody who has a family and kids who's earning less than $50,000 a year will probably not be paying anything in, in income taxes in Connecticut. Yeah, that's that's where I want to go, John, in, uh, John Craven, with this uh, proposed increase of the earned income tax credit. I think Keith Fanna for the Connecticut Mirror is the one who termed it the working poor. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tax credit that essentially gives money back to you know folks who are working and, and that's the, the the benefit of the EITC is that it it rewards people for actually working, um, but it sort of returns money to the working poor. And, and like Christine mentioned, um, you know, the nice thing about an income tax rate is that people don't have to claim it at all. It's not a credit. It, it's just less money being taken out of your paycheck. And, um, you know, but a, as Christine 
I think we almost lost uh, John there. We'll make sure that we can get him back in there. He's he's shouting you out, Christine. Uh, let me just ask you a question. We'll see if we get John back here. The governor pointed to what he says is the state's strong financial position. We're hearing that a lot uh, lately about the, the great outlook that this uh, state has economically in having the flexibility to propose tax cuts. Uh, surpluses and rainy day fund, do you think this has a... This has a, a little bit of what to do of us being, I guess, in Connecticut, so bullish on our future. So I don't know what is harder, putting together a budget uh, when the state is in deficit, as it has been for, for decades, or whether the state is in surplus. So, you know, we're, de- we're deciding now what to do with this um, surplus we have. Do we give it back to the taxpayers in the form of tax cuts or do we spend it on, on things that we haven't been able to spend it on um, over a number of years uh, as our needs have kind of piled up and we've, we've continued to cut budgets on the social services side? So lawmakers are going to have a lot to um, talk about. And I, I think it's I feel like it's a little bit harder to put together a budget during good times than it is during bad times. And there's there's always that fear, I guess, that's in the back of the lawmakers' hands uh, or heads when we're talking about inflation and whether or not you should actually be spending more money at this time. You think that kind of weighs in? Christine, John, give me one of you guys give me a thought here. What do we think about spending? I, I saw Keith Fanoff wrote this morning that it was going to be a $50.5 billion budget, so I guess we'd be spending, or billion, excuse me, I guess we'd be spending maybe a billion more a year. Does that sound right to you guys? What do you think? I think that the last budget, the last two-year budget, was around $43 billion, so um, probably about a, a $7 billion increase. Ah, I even more, yes. Per- percentages um, necessarily right now. Um, those are just the numbers that are coming to mind. So, I mean, obviously there is going to be a little bit more spending that, that does happen, um, and we still have billion, uh, I think at least a billion that hasn't been allocated, um, at least on the education side of some of that, that COVID funding. Um, so that's still hanging around. So I think that the, in the back of lawmakers' minds, they're kind of like, uh, we know this federal COVID money is going away. Um, do we, you know, do we increase state spending in order to supplement it at this time? And will we be back in deficit if we do that? John, Long-term obligations. Does that uh, ever put a rain or damper on our, our excitement about the rainy day fund and the surpluses? You know what? I think John Craven has, uh, has, is having some troubles on the Merritt Parkway or something like that. Maybe he's driving a truck on the Merritt today and he didn't realize you can't do that. Anyway, uh, Christine, what do you think about these unfunded obligations that we have? Well, so the unfunded obligations by making sure that the volatility cap remains in um, in the budget. And so on Thursday, they're kind of getting rid of that. So on Thursday this week, they're going to meet in a special session to emergency certify a bunch of stuff, including those guardrails that we put in place in 2017 to that bipartisan mm-hmm. budget. And that, those guardrails are taking um, any, any income above um, 15%. Um, and taking that and putting that into the rainy day fund and then using anything over that to pay down the pension debt. So it is beginning to make a dent. And with that still there, I think that there there isn't necessarily a concern about that, but they're going to have to continue seeing those um, 
seeing those re- returns from Wall Street in order to maintain that. Hey, this is the final question I'm going to ask you. There's a there's another proposal that the governor had that we got to see here in the in the days leading up. We're talking about ending billions of dollars in in medical debt, and I guess the skinny is that they're going to try to. Uh, work with a contractor or something like that that's going to pay off the debt uh, at, a, at a different kind of rate. So what are you hearing about this? I understand you pressed the governor on this issue. I did press the governor on this issue. So basically, this is $20 million that's going to buy up um, people's medical debt and this nonprofit. $20 million going that's going to buy like $2 billion or something like that? Uh, $20 million. I'm not quite sure where they're they're getting the two billion, but just basically, this is the back end of healthcare, right? So if we're just we're just paying off debt that's already incurred, what are we doing on the front end? What are we doing to lower costs? Um, what are we doing to lower health insurance costs for everyone? Everyone's premium, you know, went up on average thirteen percent this year. So what are we doing to help a larger group of people? And I'm being told that we are going to hear that his other health care proposals as part of his budget address today. So I will be listening closely for that. I know you will. And we're going to want to follow two of my favorite f- Twitter followers here. Of course, Christine at CT News Junkie. She's going to have more details on the budget coming out. Uh, John Craven did not make it through the show today, but uh, we love John and you can follow him at John Craven one on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for coming on to talk the budget this morning. Thank you. And stay tuned to WNPR and ctpublic.org today as my colleagues will have coverage of the state's presentation of the 2024-2025 biennium budget. Today's Where We Live was produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. And you can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. This is Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano. Thank you for listening.